This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called From Literature to Twitter, The Death of the Reader and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2015 at the Barbican in London. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this Battle of Ideas keynote discussion on From Literature to Twitter, The Death of the Reader, question mark. It's not an assertion, um, it's, a, it's a question to try and unpick and explore. My name is David Bowden. I'm the Associate Director of the Institute of Ideas and one of the main organisers of this festival. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Some of you may have just arrived today for the battle. Some of you may have been here yesterday. It's a, it's a festival of ideas. We try to create a kind of intellectual space to pick apart some of the serious questions of the day. I spent yesterday um, chairing a series of very lively um, debates around free expression, free expression on Twitter and in the online world, and free expression in the world of geek culture in terms of comic books, video games, the kind of sort of question of whether these worlds are uh, hostile to women, whether they're hostile to to free thought and free expression, whether there needs to be a a space for free speech in these kind of contemporary youth modes of engagement. And I have to say, it feels very nice to have the opportunity to be a bit on home turf today um, in the kind of very civilised world of literature and books, which is where I feel a little bit more at home and comfortable. Um, But in many ways, there's a... uh, an important question to try and unpick about the state of literary culture and what it means to be a serious reader today. Uh, we often have this discussion on the level of do books still matter? Are they still important? Um, how do we have access to books? Is it, do we need to work harder to try and engage people with the question of reading? Rarely do we actually have the opportunity to discuss what is reading for, in a way. What does it mean to have a serious intellectual and literary Culture. And I'm delighted to have the opportunity to have that discussion out here at the battle and have a kind of interesting panel who have thought quite a lot about this kind of question and kind of present us a series of provocations and thoughts um, on what they, how they interpret that question, but also to, to see what you make of it in the audience yourselves. Um, just to briefly introduce who they are, to my immediate left, we have Professor Frank Faraday, uh, who is one of the UK's uh, most well-known sociologists and cultural commentators. Um, He's the author of numerous books exploring uh, questions from therapy culture to education, parenting, health, public policy, a range of topics. Um, But I'm particularly glad to have him on this panel um, because he's the author of a new book called The Power of Reading from Socrates to Twitter, which is exploring some of the questions in the keynote. It's not actually the reason we're having the keynote. I've I've lobbied quite hard to, to have a serious discussion about literature at the Battle of Ideas as a keynote for a long time. But as it happens, I was delighted to discover that Frank was writing this book because it gave me a very good hook for this session. So I'm particularly uh, pleased that he's made such a timely contribution to the debate, and he'll be uh, launching the book after this uh, debate in the bookshop. To my uh, immediate right, we have Teresa Kremin, who is Professor of Education at the Open University, with a particular interest and focus in literacy. Um, She's widely published on that uh, topic, as well as education and creativity, and has served on the boards of many arts and literary organisations. Far too many for me to actually mention. I would highly recommend checking out her profile on the Battle of Ideas website. Um, But most personally for today, uh, she is a trustee of the UK Literacy Association and a board member of Book Trust, but many others. If if you're looking for the question of what literary culture is, Teresa is almost certainly involved in advising them. So I'm delighted to have her here. To my far right, we have Sam Leith, who is the literary editor of The Spectator 
and a columnist for the FT, Evening Standard and Prospect. Prospect are one of the media partners for this year's uh, festival. And he has just completed a stint um, as a uh, judge for the Man Booker Prize. So he's a, uh, probably delighted to have the opportunity to not be reading constantly loads of books to have a discussion about literary culture. Um, he's also the author of a great book called You Talking to Me, Rhetoric from Aristotle to Obama. Uh, which, if you, if you don't know the Institute of Ideas, we do, outside of the Battle of Ideas, a six-form debating competition called Debating Matters, which runs in 300 schools each year. And for a number of years, we've given Sam's pri a book as a prize for students. Um, so I think between us, we have to share the blame uh, for the next generation of political leaders, um, who no doubt will, will talk very uh, articulately um, on a, a number of questions, but whether you agree with them or not is something we'll pick apart in future Battle of Ideas. And last, but by no means least, we have a Lawrence Scott to my far left, Dr. Lawrence Scott, in fact, who's a lecturer in English and Creative Writing at Arcadia University, and uh, in 2011 was named one of the AHRC BBC New Generation Thinkers. Um, last year, he published his first book, The Four-Dimensional Human, um, which is a sort of series of observations and reflections on the impact of uh, digital culture on our everyday lives and our, kind of, our reading habits and how we interact with the world, which I have to say is, is well worth a, a kind of read because it's not a sort of attempt to overclaim or, or state that there is a sort of certain relationship we have to technology, um, but it's to actually just try and reflect on, on how that impacts us. And it's a, it's a really interesting read and available in the, in the bookshop, and I would recommend that. It was the uh, winner of the Royal Society of Literature's Jerwood Award in 2014. Um, so that's our panel. I, um, hopefully you probably won't hear too much from me because I think they're going to have quite a few interesting things to say and I'm looking forward to hearing what everyone thinks about the topic. But to, they're going to speak in the order I introduced them. So without much further ado, Frank. Thanks very much. About 12 years ago, I had a, an argument with my uh, administrator in the university because I'd raised the fact that people in the university you know, were often getting degrees without ever having read a whole book. And uh, I got an irate letter from him saying, you know, uh, how could you say that? And when I saw him saying, how could you say that? I expected him to say, you're lying, you're making it up, this is what's not happening. But instead what he said, how can you say that? Why are you privileging the book? And I thought that was very interesting, that a, a, a top administrator in university would feel comfortable in saying that the book shouldn't be privileged. And he outlined to me that there are many other ways of communicating and, and learning, you know, sort of slides and videos and games and a whole lot of other sort of things are, for him, were the moral and the intellectual equivalent of the books. And I became very interested in that because I did begin to notice that in many universities, you know, a lot of people were no longer reading in the way that uh, sort of one would have imagined when you read a whole book. Instead, they were reading chapters, they were given handouts, Sometimes they go online and they were given you know, certain things to read, but the idea of looking at an argument of an author from the beginning to the end was for many people an alien territory. And I'm not just talking about universities that are not in the Russell Group, but even in Augsbridge, I've, you know, I've, I've been going around. There are students whose, whose reading habit is actually quite shocking. And I began to ask a lot of questions as to why that was. And a lot of my colleagues agreed with me. I mean, nobody in my department would have uh, said anything other than that. And they try to explain it as a result of new technology. The kids are online all the time. They're being distracted by, you know, social media. We live in a very distracted world. A lot of arguments like that. And initially, I thought that maybe that was the problem. 
I'm not going to talk about it anymore, but the one thing I argue in my book that I've learned is that actually technology and Twitter and uh, social media have got nothing to do with it because we know uh, from all the, all the research that's been carried out that people that are very sophisticated online are also you know, really good readers as well of books. So there's no contradiction between reading books and having a, a, an online kind of experience. So it's not a technological problem you know, that we're kind of discussing. And I became very curious as to why that was because um, it seemed to me that throughout human history, reading was always seen as, a, as an instrument of transformation, of democratization, of advance, and of progress. It was always kind of perceived that way. Whereas today, whenever I see discussions on reading, it's, it's got an, an obituary-like character to it, the death of this and the death of that. And you know, people medicalize reading. I mean, if you go to any school, the number of reading disorders are, are kind of growing every single year. I know when I went around schools to get a school for my son, you know, the first thing that we were informed by the headma headmasters, oh, Mr. Ferredi, you'll be glad to know, because you've got a boy, and boys are presumably really bad readers. You know, we have a wonderful dyslexia unit. You know, and that was the first thing we were told. You know, so my wife and I said, why are you telling us that? You know, so it hasn't entered our mind. So my wife asked the headmaster, well, how many of the kids go to your special needs unit? And it's said 25% you know, of the boys, which I thought was a statement about the intellectual and literary values of the school rather than the fact that the boys are necessarily uh, a problem. They were just being medicalized. So I became interested as to why that was. And, and, and I'm still on this journey I'm, of trying to understand why it is that, that reading has in some shape or form changed, not necessarily in the way that we perceive it, but what's really going on. And it seems to me that the conclusion that I would come to is that there are a lot of readers around. You know, the number of readers who are reading is no less than in the past. Young people still read. They might read different things. You know, they might be reading their text and, you know, and kind of uh, and reading online. So there's, there's no difference in the quantity of reading. And arguably, we're reading more than ever before. And there's also a serious minority of what I would call serious readers. You know, I mean, that still exists. And you have to remember that in the 19th and the 18th century, Serious readers were always a minority. I mean, just because people who read didn't mean that they were really into literary culture. That hasn't changed. And arguably, the number of serious readers has, has if anything, increased in, in, over that kind of period of time. But we do have a problem, and, and the problem I think that, that, I, that I think exists is that we simply haven't got a, a language through which we can culturally value reading. I mean, outwardly, everybody talks about literacy and reading as being a really good thing. But whenever we're trying to sell the idea of reading, we no longer use a language that's integral to the reading experience. Uh, we use uh, a very technical language. It's interesting that we always talk about literacy rather than reading. And literacy and reading are two very different things. Literacy is about the decoding of a text. It's a particular skill. It's fairly narrow, actually. And I, I think that probably you can teach a monkey literary skills. Reading is different. Reading is being able to interpret, gain meaning by reading between the lines, amongst other things. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, historically, it's been a moral accomplishment, and it's still got that dimension because it's through reading that many of us, or most of us, actually gain meaning about human experience and life. And I think what has happened is that, you know, whenever we talk about reading now, we use the language of literacy to the point at which when a government publishes a report on the pleasures of reading, and, and it was published very recently. A report on the pleasures of reading argues for the importance of reading on, 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 for the following reasons. It's been proven that it's got great health benefits. 
So if you read books, you know, you're going to be obviously, you know, have a nice skin, you know, sort of, and, and you're obviously going to become, you know, sort of uh, lean and mean and good-looking, and it's good for your mental health, we're told, and, and uh, gives you a kind of balance. And then after the, the well-being arguments, which have been exhausted, and they do go on and on and on about well-being, we get to the economic arguments. You know, we're told that they're good for the economy, they're good for your CV, they're good for the labor market, they're good for the skills. Not a word about the love of reading and how you could cultivate the love of reading amongst young people. And we now live in a world where literacy has become so trivialized that everything has become a literacy. I mean, the way we avoid our reading problem is by talking, you know, teachers say, oh, you know, Frank, you're too serious. Emotional literacy is just as important. Or communication literacy is even more important. You know, uh, environmental literacy. And then the government says, oh, financial literacy. We've got to put financial literacy on the curriculum. And when you look at the large number of literacies we, we now have, what they end up doing is actually devaluing the meaning of real literacy, which is word literacy. But not only that, they actually piggyback on the back of the authority of the book, the authority of literacy. And the co course of piggybacking on it actually turns into what is a, a relatively trivial experience. And I think that the key challenge facing us is to reconstitute a language through which the love of reading means something in the 21st century. And, uh, and if we can, we, can, we can solve that problem, then many of the issues that we want to debate and discuss can be, can be sorted. But otherwise, you know, don't blame technology, blame culture is my message. Blaine, thank you. Teresa. Thank you. You'll see, Frank, there are some connections between us. I'm going to read from my notes here. As a professor of education um, who seeks to understand children's and teachers' literacy practices and identities, and I'll come to that, I'm confining my observations today to the educational context. And in the light of the debate's title, I've been wondering in what ways children's experiences of reading at school contribute to their lives as readers in the longer term. Because surely that's what education should be aiming for, the development of readers, meaning makers, for life. Or are we simply satisfied with the so-called expected standard uh, prescribed by the government of the day? The former arguably represents a child's maximum entitlement as a reader, the latter the minimum. In many respects, the reading health of our nation's children, I, I would argue, is strong, since despite the blood which continues to be spilt in the reading wars, the immeasurable power of narrative, the brilliance of kids' authors and illustrators, and the combined skills of parents, teachers, librarians and literacy charities serve to engage many of our young readers. The demise of the child reader, therefore, in my view, is far from imminent. But there are serious challenges if we're going to work together to develop that discerning sense of lifelong, uh, developing a lifelong reader. And as I see it, there are four issues around that. One's around the decline for reading for pleasure, narrow conceptualizations of what reading and readers do and instantiate, impoverished professional knowledge of kids' literature, and a lack of recognition of the role of agency and young readers' rights, combined with a persistence of ancient textual hierarchies. So let me take each of those in turn. Over the last 15 years, large-scale international surveys, such as, and they're interestingly titled, Frank, I'm sure you'll know them, PEARLS and PISA. PEARLS stands for Progress in International Reading Literacy Survey and PISA, Progression in International Student Assessment, um, taken across uh, multiple uh, nations, 40 to 45 nations and nation states, uh, engaging them roughly every five years. And they seem to suggest that girls continue to outperform boys in reading and that a worrying number of young people worldwide report that they don't really like it. 
The results for England continue to suggest that 11-year-olds read much less independently and find much less pleasure in reading, meaning-making, that is, than many of their peers in other countries. An increasing number of British teenagers view reading simply as a waste of time. Indeed, the 2013 National Literacy Trust Survey offers a slightly more positive picture, uh, but they, even that um, more recent work suggests that 34% of the students still agree with the statement, I only read if I have to, and 29% agree with the statement that their parents don't care if they spend reading, time reading or not. The young don't seem, though, to be simply turning from print to digital texts because whilst technology materials dominated the older pupils' reading choices in that survey, key stage two pupils, 7 to 11-year-olds, were more traditional in their reading consumption and enjoyed comics, magazines, fiction, and a wide range, but not necessarily uh, online texts. Secondly, then, what counts as reading and being a reader is significantly constrained uh, by the dominant discourse of accountability in our culture. This foregrounds reading scores and sidelines readers' attitudes, their preferences, their practices, their habits, and the lived experience of being a reader in the 21st century. Additionally, of course, the assessment of reading is narrow. For six-year-olds, currently, this encompasses reading <coughs> words and reading non-words, literally reading gobbledygook, as part of the Year One phonics check. How this can support readers is completely beyond me. And for 7- and 11-year-olds, reading is assessed as a set of discrete sub-skills. So while societal perceptions of reading and what it means to be a reader are possibly changing, school reading and school definitions of a reader and their identities as readers are still viewed as a set of technical skills or competencies, which involve decoding and comprehension as tested by written uh, tests, not as a social-cultural practice rooted in webs of relationships and embedded in the context of its use. And furthermore, whilst multimedia, multimodal texts have changed the way young children expect to read and the ways they construct meaning, such texts remain completely unmentioned in the new national curriculum. For many youngsters, this means there's a distinction between the reading matter that they enjoy at home and that which is sanctioned in school. And although the new national curriculum, for the first time ever, actually, includes reading for pleasure, one could argue this is a really two-edged sword, since teachers cannot require children to read for pleasure. It is mandated now, and not all texts are deemed equal. We might ask, as an aside, why it's mandated, and that's because Pearls and Pisa show that there's a bi-directional relationship between the will to read and the skill. They enrich each other. And so because the will to read will influence the skill and the scores on the doors really count, then reading for pleasure has now been mandated. Thirdly, there are concerns about adult teachers, readers, their knowledge of children's literature. Surveys suggest this is limited to a, a kind of dull-dominated canon, and that has real consequences for young readers who won't know what to read next if there aren't teachers who can enrich and offer them new suggestions. And then, uh, lastly, the issue around what children read, I think, is a significant one. I believe we should avoid ranking reading uh, hierarchically, reading material. The national curriculum is very book-bound, but comics, newspapers, magazines and online reading materials are also valid and important entry points. And for readers, volition and agency is key. As adults, we choose what to read, what not to read, what to give up on. Uh, we, don't, we choose not to be interrogated at the end of a text or not to have to write a review at the end of text. But young children often have those readers' rights denied them. 
and therefore their volition is, is uh, taken away. So, to finish, yes, uh, I think if we want to support lifelong readers, then we need to encourage the profession to loosen the reading reins currently tethered to the performativity agenda and participate more themselves as readers, as what I call reading teachers, teachers who read and readers who teach and who explore the synergies uh, therein. Those kinds of reading teachers are teaching reading through the lens of reader uh, activity, reader practices and understanding what it is to be a reader rather than only teaching reading through the lens of what teachers need to perform uh, in the context and culture they're working in. Thank you. Sam. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to risk, um, since this is a battle, being um, Dr Pangloss here, really, because I don't think there's any sort of crisis in reading... I think, in fact, everything is more or less completely tickety-boo, but it's obviously not a very combative stance to take. Um, but, I mean, to start with a sort of really obvious and basic thing, you know, what is the... There's all this new technology we're terrified about. What's the internet made of? It's made almost entirely of words, um, with the exception of the parts that are made of gifts of cats falling over. Children and people of all ages are more engaged with text now, day in, day out, than probably, you know, in a widespread way, at any time in human history. You know, we've, in the 70s and 80s, you know, there's a great terror. Television's going to rock people's minds, just as, of course, you know, as Frank points out in his books and articles, um, historically, you know, the theatre came along and people thought theatre would rock people's minds. Writing came along and Socrates thought that was a bad idea. Reading the novel was regarded as a corrupting and disastrous influence. Television was regarded as a bad thing. But... You know, actually, there was a period when, you know, text was, if not in abeyance, there was, you know, in the 70s and 80s, television, other forms of semantic input, was quite dominant. And actually now, you know, with texting, with Twitter, with social media, it's a huge, huge, constant um, exposure to text. And it's not text in the form of, you know, books always, but the linguistic engagement with it the sophistication, actually. I mean, I think people think, well, you know, text speak because they aren't spelling right. It makes, you know, the Daily Mail will say this is making our children dumb. But actually children required, and young adults required, required much more sophisticatedly to do what linguists call code switching, to find different registers, to use often quite subtle linguistic hints and clues. You know, I mean, you can talk to teenagers about how, how you punctuate your text messages. And they'll be, oh, well, you know, I wouldn't put a stop at the end because that sort of come come to be a sort of, rather, it puts kind of closure onto a, onto a conversation, so you get lots of ellipses at the end of things. So people, essentially, children and young adults are in a very, very textual society, and that cannot but have a kick-on effect, it seems to me, to reading. And there are concerns, I know, about attention span. But do we see that um, attention spans shortening? I mean, if we did, I would suggest... Say so we'd, we'd have, you know, fiction, for instance, being in the form of, you know, we'd have a great resurgence of the short story and the death of the long novel. And quite the opposite seems to be happening. We're engaging more and more with long-form text, with long-form narrative in television and film. And, you know, Stephen Johnson made the argument in his book, Everything Bad is Good for You. He said, well, look, we've got a situation where people are convinced that computer games and television and video are you know, rotting people's brains, that the nation's getting stupider. And he said, well, why do we have this 
effect the IQ, you know, internationally, IQ tests, which of course there are a lot of issues about those as well, but let's say the IQ tests do show a steady rise. And he argues that what's happened is that our pop culture has become more sophisticated and that it is more of a cognitive workout in, say, in the, in the 70s, a soap opera would have two or three stories running in parallel at most. And now you get something like The Wire, which has dozens and dozens and is told in flashback and flash forward and multiple characters, multiple overlapping storylines. And he says, actually, don't look at the ostensible content, look at the form. Again, look at, to look in a sort of junk culture example, you know, we think we're losing our attention spans. The longest continual narratives in human history have been written in the 20th and 21st centuries, and they're the Marvel and DC universes. Reading is changing. With the Booker Prize, which I've just judged, we gave to Marlon James a sort of 962-page book with 75 characters in it. We see books like that, you know, and people say, oh, it's a bit like a box set. It's a bit... What's happening is not that television is dumbing down fiction, it's that television is getting brighter and fiction is responding. So Garth Risk-Halberg's new book, 1,000 pages long, Ryan Gattis's new book, 900 pages. These are the big sort of landmark books now that are, that are being published with great confidence... And they're big, and they're polyphonic, and they're complex. Um, I think what we could simply say is that what serious reading is changing. It doesn't mean it's stopping. And to use another high culture analogy with Jurassic Park, life will find a way. Reading always finds a way. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. And Lawrence. I'm going to talk about noise and silence in online reading. Uh, if people talk about the philosopher Roland Barthes at all today, it's often that he killed off the author. And all he basically meant by this was that to understand a text, you no longer really needed to know where the author was coming from, their biography, the particulars of what motivated them. The text speaks for themselves, for itself. Then, to cheer us up, um, people say, well, he might have killed the author, but he gave birth to the reader, for it's the reader who makes the text happen. It's the reader who experiences it as a whole, unified thing. But if you go back to what Barthes actually wrote, which I did recently in preparation for this, his reader isn't really looking so lively. And this is what he says in this famous essay. He says, The reader is without history, biography, psychology. They are simply that someone who holds together in a single field all the traces by which the written text is constituted. For Bart, then, the reader is the final destination of any piece of writing. The reader is the place where the text becomes alive. And he's trying to really describe someone at the very moment of reading comprehension someone who's lost themselves to the act of reading, who is impersonal and unselfconscious. Barthes' reader is in some ways as dead as his author. Their particulars don't count. It's the text itself that counts. Uh, but there's something changing now with Web 2.0 and with digital life. While this sort of engrossed reader certainly hasn't died, the digital revolution is attempting to replace it with a new kind of reader, a wired-in reader, a self-conscious reader, the place of intersection between social media and the reading of books actually shines a light on the reader themselves. Uh, let's think about this through an example. The reader isn't impersonal or anonymous on Twitter. One example I have, for obvious reasons, um, I've written, just written a book called The Four-Dimensional Human, and there is a woman on Twitter, and I'm going to call her Jen, because I know that's her name. And uh, on September 23rd of this year, Jen tweeted via her Goodreads account, 20% done with the four-dimensional human. A week later, on September the 30th, she tweeted, 
24% done with the four-dimensional human. And I was like, get on with it, Jen, come on. Um, that is the end of entries on the four-dimensional human in Jen's <laughs> Twitter feed. So um, when I'm feeling uh, good about the book, I think, well, she was so absorbed in it that she forgot to update Twitter with her progress, or maybe 24% was more than enough. Um, I'll likely never know. But if we think, too, about people reading on Kindles and various e-readers, these books, these texts are linked to their social media profiles. Words highlighted in the text can then be retweeted. As an author, I can view a Kindle version of my book and see what passages readers have highlighted or where they gave up reading or their comments on certain ideas that I've written on. So this one silent space between the writer and the reader is now a social space online. Social media is generally a mass exercise in resurrecting our histories, cementing our biographies, broadcasting our psychology. It encourages us to announce ourselves and restores everything that Bart's reader supposedly loses in the act of reading. Just take the example of Throwback Thursdays, which is the event of uploading pictures from the past. And this is just one of the many ways that we're tethered to our own histories online. We're constantly reminded of people we may know, people who we may well have tried to outrun, uh, old flames, old bullies, old bores. So the digital reader, by necessity, reveals themselves. They are alive. They have, as the saying goes, web presence. They intersect with the digital text and make themselves known while doing so. And now this is all part of the noise of digital literary culture that many people object to. But if we think of digital life on the one hand as an invasion of the reader, filling up the spaces between traditional texts with their highlights and comments and tweets, we also have to think of a new form of digital reading, new sorts of texts that force the reader to behave differently. These texts aren't associated with noise, but instead are built on silences, on the empty spaces between the words. In 2012, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jennifer Egan used Twitter to publish a short story called Black Box, which is about a woman sent on a spy mission. And it commented on all sorts of digital age issues of surveillance and data harvesting. But the story's form also exploited new modes of reading. Tweets were released between 8 and 9 p.m. over a fortnight, and a few examples are, even a powerful man will be briefly self-conscious when he first disrobes to his bathing suit. Sleep is restorative in almost every circumstance. This sort of storytelling is what I think of as a literary version of Impressionism. Think of, say, for instance, the Cezanne brushstroke, how a tree is represented by an olive green line with the white canvas, spaces of the white canvas between the brushstrokes. The eye fills in these blank spaces with detail. And this is really how Twitter reading works. A slim line of text has to conjure a whole world. In 2013, an American radio journalist called Scott Simon live-tweeted his elderly mother's death over a series of days from her hospital room. Many were sort of um, freaked out by this, but I read them, and I read those tweets, and I was amazed at how evocative they were. I could see with clarity the hospital room with the Chicago morning sun coming in and hitting the walls. I had a picture of the mother in her bed, a sense of her wit, and the double bluff of bravery that both mother and son were playing on each other. The result of these tweets was a portrait composed mainly of gaps and absences. From these minimalist brushstrokes of detail, you could see a new poetic form emerging. It's an art form embedded in digital life, a brief glittering stretch of the Twitter timeline. This is the new kind of digital impressionism, the unfolding present caught on the wing. 
is that it's at once highly crafted and improvised. Now, doesn't that provoke a new, serious sort of reading? For it's in these gaps between digital fragments, perhaps, that the reader can lose themselves, a space where they can dissolve into a pure, impersonal, imaginative act. It's where Bartz's reader is reborn online, or should I say it's where they die again, experiencing that exquisite death of self-consciousness that is surely the necessary condition of serious reading. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. A, um, a kind of very interesting series of um, observations. I'm just going to go straight out to the audience, actually, because uh, time is frustratingly brief to uh, have what I think is very important discussion. In. So it'd be good to see points or kind of questions. So there's a, a gentleman there in the middle of the... Okay, yeah. This is just kind of a general comment to the panel. Um, I feel myself that, <clears throat> as someone who writes fiction, that Twitter is incredibly interesting in the idea that with social media you can literally put anything about yourself online and it's in a way it's very kind of like ego massaging. But the idea with Twitter is that it's a great means of self-editing. You only get so many characters so you need to get your point across in a sentence or two, which I think is a great okay, kind of like communication skill at least and can be seen... I think it can be seen as a way of kind of improving on your own sentence writing, for example. And the other, I, the other thing I get from Twitter is this idea of the, the throwback Thursday thing, the, the constant access to memory, mm -hmm. which I think is really, really integral if you want to write, because most, most literature really is about perspectives on memory, I feel. Mm -hmm. Hi. I'm hazy on whether today we're reading more novels or less be interested in what those sales figures and studies <coughs> show with different age groups, younger people and older people. And secondly, picking up Frank's point about language, I think we definitely are um, missing a language to express love of reading in terms that um, everyone understands. When I um, tried to share my love of Dostoevsky with um, colleagues, friends who don't read many novels... Um, it comes across as too deep, pretentious, elitist, snobbish, and I think that's a real shame because I don't see novels per se as difficult or obtuse. I think most people really miss out when they don't read great novels, and I think even expressing that in today's society where you know there's a great levelling, lowest common denominator... It's very difficult to be elitist in that way. I wonder why we seem to have an instrumental approach to so many areas of human activity these days. So with the reading example, it's no longer good enough that someone loves reading. Um, policy formers have to say, well, what's the benefit? What's the social benefit? And this happens in so many different areas of life these days. So like with reading, they say you know, it might be good for this, that, or the other, and it's no longer... And the, the problem is, once they get involved in asking those questions and they draw up their, their checklist of criteria, then they start looking for things that they can measure, um, and then they start trying to twist and distort the reasons for reading. You know, some reasons are seen as good, some reasons are seen as not so good. And this just happens in so many areas of, of, of activity these days. And I, I sort of wonder why it is. And, and I don't know if the panel would agree, but is it just that we are uncomfortable with the very idea of personal autonomy these days. So the fact that I might love reading or don't love reading, or the fact that I love reading comics or the internet or even novels, 
people just society policy formers aren't content with that these days they, they, they want to get involved in it and try and distort um, what it is that I like and don't like doing yeah I just started studying English lit as a degree actually um, and I was just wondering who you think is meant to facilitate the reading like who engenders that love of reading in children is it teachers is it the state is it parents or is it children themselves hi to what extent do you think that newer forms of literature that come about online. You mentioned live tweeting. Do you think that it's about sort of the order in which things are read? How much is that the new thing? For example, writing in alternate reality games, there's no intrinsic order, say, of which articles on a website one reads. Mm. But, okay, I think that's a, um, quite a bit to try and pick up on and respond to. I don't know if anyone wants to yeah. jump in, Frank. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I love Twitter. I use it all the time. And I I can relate to what people have said about the different aesthetic experiences that come about, and reading always changes. And of course, there's always been different kinds of readers. I mean, throughout history, there were people who read very instrumentally, others who had more aesthetic you know, interest, and uh, you know, there's a wide variety of literature on the different kinds of readers and readers' identities that have occurred. But I think what we're discussing, uh, or not discussing at the moment, is a big evasion uh, which you know, sort of, we need to confront, which is that, okay, lots of big novels, you know, lots of long novels being written, wonderful stuff coming out online, but there is a kind of reaction, or what I call a, a flight from, of content. And I think that we're, we, we're living in a world where the issue of content uh, and the authority of content is something that we try to evade. We do it online all the time, where, you know, and, and, and we kind of say, oh, this is a very democratizing impulse. Everybody's a reader. You know, so when it, and everybody is an author at the same time. And the more we say that, the more we infantilize everybody because basically anybody that, that, that's able to put forward 140 characters suddenly becomes Dostoevsky or at least on a moral, you know, the functional equivalent of that. And there is a kind of sense in which it's the flight from content and, and the refusal to give authoritative statements and, 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 and try to reconstitute some form of cultural authority that I think at the end of the day leads to a situation that we kind of confront with. The reason why we're having a language of love of reading because love needs to have an object. You know, and it's not reading because reading is a means to something else. And that object is the content, you know, whatever, con whatever content we want to embrace and love. And I think it's the failure to address that issue, finding refuge in technological solutions by saying that everything is of equal value, doesn't matter what you read. It, it is that which I think is, a, it is becoming to me, a huge problem, principally intellectually in the universities, where I think the reading culture has turned into a really banal you know, sort, of, sort of situation. And we're also in a situation where teachers who themselves love reading are unable to communicate that to, to either children or to undergraduates because the material they give to either students or pupils is, is rubbish. I mean, you know, we have a worksheet culture in schools where kids are reading these worksheets, which bore the pants of everybody. How can you communicate a love of reading through that? In universities, we give handouts, lecture notes. How do you communicate your love of reading? And I think that kind of malaise that, that has kind of crept in is a very real one. And I think if we ignore that, you know, so we're going to have problems. It's not a, a problem that we cannot transcend, but I think we need to have a creative struggle. And every generation probably has to have a creative struggle where those kinds of problems are confronted and, and, and resolved. I, think, <clears throat> I want to take issue slightly with that. I think this idea that 
all content is now either irrelevant or is regarded as completely equal and there's no sort of hierarchy of cultural authority. I mean, I think that's again said by the facts on the ground. I mean, if you consider, you know, the way the internet, this massive stuff is organised, Google PageRank is all about putting it into a hierarchy, is into finding out what's, what's most linked to, what has accrued a sort of cultural authority that way. If you look at, say, Wikipedia, which, again, causes people to throw up their hands and say, but anyone can edit it, it's, actually, it's carefully set up so that, right, you don't just copy off the front page. Everything has to be cited, and the citations have to be authoritative. They have to be real-world rather than simply circular. I mean, actually, most of the endeavour, I think, of the new technology is finding ways of organising a mass of information hierarchically. And I think that still applies to the reading. I'm sure the problem with handout cultures in schools, you know, I mean, people teaching, but I think people teaching badly may be a sign of a problem in a particular corner of a particular profession. I don't think it's right to globalise that um, to make a statement about the world the world we're in. I think we're actually in a very hierarchical and authoritative world. Lawrence, you seem like you want to jump in. And then well, I was just thinking about this idea of content and the, the question um, asked about how Twitter can be good for writers in terms of uh, honing economy of language. I think that's totally true. Um, it was interesting what you said about how it, the permanence of <coughs> is helpful for the writer. I think that could be the new sort of literary subject in a way. If you look back to, say, older forms like Proust's novel In Search of Lost Time is all about the, the loss of memory. And so many writers write out of loss. The writer, Irish writer Colin Tabin, who lives in New York a lot of the time, was asked recently, when are you going to write a New York novel? And he says, I only write about places that I've lost. Once I leave forever, then I may have an image of what New York is like. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how fiction of the future deals with this omnipresent now and the retrievability and accessibility of our own pasts in fiction. But also I just want to think about not so much how Twitter is useful for the writer, but what sort of reading it encourages in the, in the, in the reader. Um, there was an uh, essay by Andrew O'Hagan in the London Review of Books called Ghosting, which is all about his adventures as a ghostwriter with Julian Assange. It was retweeted and on Facebook and stuff 14,000 times, which for a literary essay is immense, but it was 26,000 words long. And I just looked through some of the tweets of people advertising it, and they say, say things like, it's a monster piece, but really worth it. It's not exactly short, but a fantastic read. You'll need time for this, but it's worth it. It's a long piece, but worth it. So this is 26,000 words, but it's great. And I think we all need to think about today that sense of that string of buts that are coming... In, in the discussion that is where, at what point have we reached where length is sort of the enemy of value Brilliant. Frank hasn't stormed out by the way that wasn't <laughs> he's struggling very manfully through a, a chest infection moment I'm sure he'll pop back in so we can carry on as we are Teresa I wanted to pick up on two points that were made about instrumentalism and how kids or who supports young children in developing that love of reading and I think you're right in suggesting that clearly it's um, children themselves are hugely volitionally involved in that but of course they have to be um, or need therefore to have access to high quality material that's going to engage, entice uh, and they need support by people who are going to read that story, those stories to them Currently in our national curriculum, the state does intervene to say that children should be in, in the early years uh, reading books and experiencing books that um, are phonically regular. 
so that the phonics test in year one with our six-year-olds can therefore support them in reading that gobbledygook. So, I mean, I was, this is an anecdote, but I was in Waterstones looking at a mother and a very young child, and she, the boy is wanting to look at these books, these lovely, fabulously illustrated picture fiction books, and she's wanting to buy the phonic practice test so that her son can play the game called reading in our current culture. And I just... I kind of stood there and I thought, no, you can't do it, Teresa, it's not up to you. Don't get involved, as it were. But I was like, oh, my God. And there was this kind of debate going on, and guess who lost? Well, the Littman lost. So I went home with this book, which he looked really disgruntled with, which was clearly an exercise book with worksheets. And that's just, like, so depressing. It's also depressing that in the survey of um, children's, or of teachers' um, knowledge of children's literature, 24% weren't able or didn't, and we don't know which that is, but they carried on to the rest of the questionnaire, 24% of these 1,200 teachers didn't name a children's picture fiction creator. They were working in primary schools from children 5 to 11. 22% didn't or couldn't name a single poet. Now, that's really challenging, and it's because those people in those kinds of contexts, brilliant teachers we have in this country as well, and I'm sure some of those are brilliant teachers, but feel pressured on the agenda not to read aloud you know, rich literature and share the power of that novel, but to um, deliver the goods, which is in making sure those children can answer those questions with reference to the text, making sure they use particular vocabulary to score, get the scores on the doors higher because the instrumental agenda runs the day. And that's pretty depressing. Okay, great. Okay, I'm going to go back out to the audience again. I'm just going to say, because I don't get to ask too many questions myself as a chair. Well, I mean, it's interesting for me because one of the reasons I wanted to do the discussion because I'm fascinated by that con- concept of authority in re- where, what shapes us all as readers. Because I remember I've been haunted at university that one of my lecturers, who was a, who was a fine a, a Renaissance scholar a, um, and a kind of proud postmodernist uh, in kind of modern literature, but I remember him kind of coming back from a sort of lecture crestfallen, I kind of asked him what was wrong, and I remember him sort of saying, well, you know, I've just been trying to teach Mansfield Park to my students, and they kept on referring to it as Jane Austen's slavery book. And the reason for that is, of course, that there was a, a chapter in Edward Said's Orientalism where he takes a paragraph from Mansfield Park and talks about it. And obviously it gets taught now as a kind of post-colonial literature text. And he was saying to himself, what have you know, my generation of scholars done to the world that Jane Austen has been read now primarily as somebody who was commenting on slavery? Um, and that was a kind of concern. And that kind of a whole sense of what it means to be a kind of reader had been lost in a certain way. So I always get a bit nervous when people talk about reading culture kind of looking after itself, because I don't think it's true. But that's, that's just me throwing that into the discussion. But I'm also going to take some points from the floor alongside that. So there's, yeah, there's a whole kind of just group of people around these, these two rows. Um, I want to away. ask a, a personal question to the panellists, in particular Frank. Like, what's your personal experience when you read digital content or when you read books? What do you enjoy more or less? You know, with this um, meaning-making, you know, do you feel uh, digital online reading help you to enhance or otherwise, you know, the meaning-making? Yeah, I, I do think, uh, I very much agree that there's a, a problem with um, being authoritative about reading in the way Frank was saying, and I don't think it's the same as <coughs> the kind of Google ranking. I just find, I find my stomach flip a bit then, because to, I mean, there's such a difference between judging a, a, the quality of a book and its ranking status on some, you know, Google or whatever thing you're looking at. Um, the criteria is totally different, and I think there's a real... I was really struck um, when I looked at Matthew Arnold. OK, we might not like everything he wrote, but he took reading seriously. 
And he was a school inspector, and in one of his reports, the main thing he said was, we need, teachers need a list of good books. They need a list of good books that no teacher in England had had one since the early 19th century. This was the mid-19th century he was calling for one. In the mid-20th century, the English Association created a... Fan, a, a it was fantastic in that it was a really comprehensive list of books that were suggested, not saying you have to read for this age, not in the way the phonics, uh, phonics readers are leveled today, but it was like understanding the kind of um, imaginary scope and um, um, imaginary capacity, children's capacity to imagine and symbolise and interpret meanings and suggesting books in accordance with that. And it seems to me that's something everyone's, everyone's kind of really stays, kind of shies away from today. What is a good book? Why can a primary teacher not say why Alan Oldberg's Fast Fox Slow Dog is much, much better than anything in the national curriculum? If we had teachers who could begin to think about that and justify it, I think we'd have um, more readers in primary school, at least. I wanted to sort of agree with some of the things that Teresa said, because I've got primary school-age children, and um, I've been really struck by an eight-year-old. They learn this grammar now. They learn this stuff about grammar that I don't understand as an adult. And yet the books they read in the class, uh, if, if, they have, if they're ever read to, which they rarely are, are sort of really little kids' books. And I think it's such a massive loss. And you think of all the things they teach in school now that I'm not really sure they need to teach, so they're kind of having sex education from six. And, but they don't... But somehow, to me, it's such an important sort of moral part of teaching children is that you get them to read things that are challenging and difficult, and they just don't have that. And I think it's something that, you know, Mike is lucky because they have it at home. A lot of kids don't have that at home. Parents haven't got time. Parents are busy. Parents aren't readers. You know, we're so confused in some ways about the role of education nowadays, I feel. But for one, to me, that's such a central thing is that you should read challenging books at school. And it really, it really doesn't happen, in my experience. When I uh, became fascinated by reading decades ago, an end was put to it when I was channeled into a scientific um, curriculum and never had the time to read properly. And always it seemed that the real goal of education was to be as broad as possible, to include a wide range of, of subjects and a wide range of challenges, be it you know, philosophical, be it literature, whatever it was. And it seems now there's almost a confluence, if you like, of increased specialization, move away from a broad curriculum, complicated by this instrumentalism. So I just wondered what the panel felt about... I, I took Frank's point very much that this is a cultural problem, this is a broader problem, and education is just one of the parts of that broader problem. So this is the opposite of what some people have been saying. And concerning secondary school children, would you say that... Perhaps we shouldn't focus so much on making the children, like, pushing them to uh, read books because we haven't pushed them to use social media and then that's flourished. And people, like, there are book clubs which have already been set up but just no one's using them. And there are competitions. And, uh, but then out of competitions, out of homework, people just aren't doing it. Like, I'd say there are only about six people in my class of 30, you could actually call out-of-school readers? That's a very, very good question. And I, I do want you to try to answer that. Do you want to hand, pass the mic just behind you as well? Well, I'm from, um, from Berlin. 
And um, we have in Germany this and it's a discussion if people, um, if, if children at school should read Astrid Lindgren because there's a story of Pippi Langstrom's father, the, um, the, the Negro king, and there's a white king over, um, over an island with black people. And could kids be offended by this? And I think it's not just a problem of that the technique of reading is not um, learned at school. It's also a problem that teachers want to prevent children reading something of offensive and reading something what could um, change and challenge them. And I think that's the really point of reading, being um, changing um, through reading, being offended, being evolved um, oneself. And I think the problem is schools want to prevent children from that. Um, so my comments are in regards to facilitating reading. Now, as a teacher, an English teacher, within my school, we do provide students with um, a book list that's relevant and related to not only the curriculum, but um, books that they may be interested in. As a, within our department, we read young adult fiction and books that, so that we can recommend books towards, to the students. We have lessons that facilitate um, reading, so lessons that are predominantly focused on students' reading as well. Now, although we're doing all of this, we still face, and there is still a struggle to get students to read for pleasure. And I just feel as though there's only so much that can be done to um, facilitate that because you can't actively instill that. A book can instill that within a student, um, them reading that and finding that book. And we're doing everything we can to um, give them access, but there is still a big struggle within the school. Okay, great. So, uh, um, so just some kind of quick response to anything you want to pick up, Frank? Yeah, I mean, I think you don't push people to read, but you turn them on to reading. I think that's the key point. And it's, 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 it, to me, it's absolutely essential that you do that. And the fact that we're evading that and, and trying to find refuge in tablets and in you know, placards and various other things is, is just intellectual cowardice in, in big time. Now, the things that we can see very, very clearly in schools, you know, we all know what's going on in schools, I think you're absolutely right, uh, also exist in precisely the same intensity in universities. And we never discussed that because you know, it, it's one thing for a seven-year-old not to love reading just yet. But when you have you know, young adults who voluntarily go to university, I mean, nobody forces them. It, they've, they've, they don't have to be there. Actually telling you that reading a book is a drag and complaining that you know, sort of the expectation that you're going to read so many books is unreasonable, then you've got a problem. But what's even worse is when schools acquiesce to that. So in my discipline in sociology, we very rarely get students of sociology to read theoretical texts. It's too difficult to read Weber or Durkheim or Marx. We, this is just beyond them. So instead what we do is we give the equivalent of a handout. I mean, real thin, gruel uh, stuff in, in many, many cases. Uh, sometimes even argue that uh, great publications, the newspaper articles, are the equivalent. So go read a, a something from the sun that tells you the way the world works. Uh, is the equivalent of reading a proper book. What we're doing is we're infantilizing our readers, and that's really the, the big problems that we face. We're continually infantilizing the readers. And it seems to me that it, you know, one of the instruments to which infantilization occurs is the instrumentalist point that the guy over there made, uh, and, the, and this kind of obsession with n counting numbers. I mean, if you're going to count Google pages, aside from the engineering you know, sort of uh, manipulation that Google and others are involved in, that's like saying that uh, the sun, which has got the highest number of, you know, presumably of newspapers that are being sold, 
is probably on balance more authoritative than the august spectator, which doesn't sell nearly as much. You know, and what we're doing is we're kind of using, you know, sort of sheerly quantitative measures and ignoring the content. I mean, when I speak, sometimes I'm told the reason why I'm invited to speak is because of my Wikipedia number. They actually count how many hits you have on a Wikipedia page, and you don't get invited to some places unless it's so many. But, you know, the people that invite you often have got no idea what you're going to say, you know, whether you, you know, whether, whether you can put a sentence together. It doesn't really matter. What really matters is that Ferreri had so many, you know, Wikipedia hits. And I think that when we go down that road, you know, really the issue of content becomes entirely, you know, the afterthought. And that's, that's what I'm concerned about. Um, Sam, do you, do you want to come back on something? Because no, I think, I think there's, um, what Frank says there is absolutely fair. I, th um, I think my, my point about the hierarchies was that we, we are trying to produce hierarchies of authority. Um, and some of those methods of brute force, but that I mean, I, it, I thought it was very interesting this point about you know the, um, Jane Austen being the slave, you know Mansfield Park being the slavery novel, because it certainly suggests that even if they've digested it in a particularly stupid way, um, Edward Said's canonical authority was actually kind of coming to bear on Jane Austen. I mean, this was not a sort of oh, this is the one of the film. Mm -hmm. This is they're actually in their kind of lumbering way, you know, addressing a critical and theoretical. Point, which I think is quite encouraging rather than mm -hmm. otherwise. And as for having you know, lists of series, I'm mystified by this idea that younger children aren't being given books, whole books to read in primary schools that the primary school teachers can't name a children's author. Because, well, I've got a child in key stage one and is, she's being sent home from an ordinary state school you know, day in, day out with books and you know, sort of wandering up the stairs. You know, and, and I think... The hierarchies of reading this, these are good books, these are bad ones. You have to be a bit careful about that because the gateway drug is reading anything and everything. You know, I, you know, now I sort of make my living writing supposedly sort of semi-highbrow or middlebrow literary criticism. But, you know, I absolutely grew up devouring comics and Doctor Who novelizations and all that sort of stuff because it was just getting the habit of text. And I think... That's, that's why I'm optimistic about the fact that what we think of as low cultural forms and we feel threatened by, actually they are an engagement with text and that's what gets you into reading. I think, as Frank said, <coughs> you can turn them on to reading, you can't make someone read. Theresa? I agree entirely that the different kinds of texts that children are reading and of choice at home is a very powerful form of stepping towards reading, continue to read that range as we all do, magazines and the internet as well as literature. Uh, but I think, and I don't want to be suggest that all teachers are in this position of not knowing, but we clearly do have a professional challenge that's pressured by the instrumental agenda. Um, but I think, back to what you were saying, really, there is a really important piece about finding the right book for the right child at a particular moment in time. And it isn't that the adult can do that. The child may be able to do it for themselves, following up a Martin Waddell or going for uh, you know, uh, Patrick Ness's latest novel or whatever. Uh, but, uh, but we need to be recognising the book makes a difference. The content of that book makes a difference. And whilst we talk about reading, we don't talk about the text. And I really agree with Frank that we need to be revisiting what does reading mean, to, what is reading in the 21st century, and where does the text play a role in that journey? Not as if it were about people, but about the narratives that we read as we go and to discuss those. So it's really about high expectations and high support that we need to be offering young people but the high expectations <coughs> need to be framed around what is it we're discussing 
Lawrence? Well, I mean, it's the f I'm interested in the form of the text as well, and really reading is a muscular activity like any others. You know, we look at, we can think of cultural values, think of all the magazines that have sort of the men's fitness with get the perfect abs over and over again, week in, week out, and yet there's no equivalent for sort of the, stren the strenuousness <coughs> of reading, uh, of how to actually tone up to handle these difficult texts. Uh, that just isn't really in the general culture at all. And there's a great book by someone called Nicholas Carr called The Shallows. And he really talks about, um, much more quantitatively, about the brain's plasticity and how if it's always training on certain short, fragmented hypertexts where you're leaping in between pages, it will get accustomed to absorbing that sort of thing, but it will be very bad at, at being able to absorb and stay the course and have the stamina for war and peace. So it depends on what forms we're getting this content in. I think early childhood education needs to give you that sort of long distance training as well as the hypertext training. Okay, brilliant. So I'm going to try and take a final a, uh, round of questions. So if you can try and keep yourself brief. And then... Thank you very much. I was very shocked to hear um, Frank say, talk about the dumbing down in universities. Um, I'm out of touch with education. I'm quite old. I went to university in the 80s when we had to read several several full-length novels in a week. We had to struggle with Weber. We, 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 had, we had a really, really tough sort of intellectual time. How are we going to produce the serious intellectuals and thinkers of the future if people are not made or don't want to get to grips with the long and the important texts, such as War as Peace and Peace for One, and certainly reading Weber and other of the intellectuals of the past is very important in my view. Yeah. For advice on writing that uh, really sh needs to be read, um, you can't go much better than the old adage of having something to say and saying it well. And I think Professor Faraday's pointed to uh, how there is something of a, uh, not far off a crisis of having, really having something to say. But I think we might be in danger of being a little bit lazy about how we say it. Because I think there is this temptation to say, well, Digital allows us to say it any way we like. And um, there's short form, there's long form. Um, but really, I think what people are talking about in, in that respect is, is format. You can do it in 120 characters. You can do it um, in as many words as you like. But that's, you know, that's like saying print culture was all about the number of words you could get on the page. And no, it wasn't. Print, public print culture was about the form of the novel. Um, long-form journalism was characteristically about the new journalism and the capacity to tell real stories like they were novels. Uh, there was something of a revolution in the 1960s and, and 70s. So the point that I'm making is this, that format and literary form are not the same thing. And I think really the difference between the pot-boiler, low-level university handout and Weber, Marx and Durkheim is in the form of words. It's in the formulation of words that makes the difference. And that make, makes me more of a formalist nowadays than I ever thought I'd have to be. Hi. Um, there's this program called Spritz, which is speed reading, and it's done through science, um, where you can read 250 words per minute. My question is, how do you see this speed reading technology altering our reading culture, and where do you see this going? I'd like to just concentrate on the other side, which is literacy. I think it's all very well talking about the uh, pleasures of reading and imparting uh, reading pleasure to children. But what about the huge number of children that leave school without the basic literacy uh, knowledge 
if you like, the utilitarian aspect of it. I know that's not very fashionable, but surely it's... Um, when you talk about the, the mother choosing between the imaginative book and the phonetic uh, uh, book, surely it is important to just teach children who come particularly from disadvantaged backgrounds the, the actual techniques of literacy itself. Um, speaking as someone who's just uh, very recently left secondary school and as someone who really, really enjoys reading. What, there was a period of about two or three years where I deliberately stopped reading, and the thing that put me and many of my classmates off was the fact that we were analysing and studying the novels rather than enjoying them. The fact that we couldn't simply take a novel home and read it, we had to go over the meaning behind it, the various ways uh, the text could be interpreted, and I just wondered what the panel thoughts about that being a possible discouragement to reading, the fact that it's studying rather than enjoying. Um, his point was essentially my first point, so I think he just put that brilliant. I completely agree with what he just said. But my second point is also, also that um, in, se- in primary schools even, ability is a huge part of why the love of reading comes about. I've um, observed, say, a class of, I think, maybe year twos, and I've observed a class of year sevens. Um, I've seen some kids reading books that are meant for, say, year five, year six, and some kids reading books that, like, at my age, I read. And I think that their love of reading is equal. If they're passionate about what they're reading and what they're reading interests them, then it shouldn't be compared about what book is better for them. Essentially, if they love reading, then they love reading. I think the re- I'm in secondary school, and I think the reason why some people don't read is the things that the national curriculum makes us read are boring and old-fashioned, the things that people used to read and we can't understand them. Okay, okay. And, and then there's somebody just the row behind. Um, and then we'll kind of come back for kind of responses but also final remarks. Yeah. Hiya. In terms of what you're saying about Twitter, I think, yeah, it can be really useful for writers at the moment who are like, you know, they've been writing for several years and now it's like a new way to use the form type of thing. But for people who are like growing up with Twitter type of thing and like it's not a discipline for them, is what I'm wondering is do you think that if you grow up without already having that and then suddenly, you know, it's just being really brief all the time, I think it kind of limits young people's kind of vocabulary and, like, they don't learn that discipline. They just go straight to the kind of, like, lazy writing. Brilliant. Okay, hey, um, great. So I'll try and, hey, um, yeah, if there's anything you want to come back to and kind of leave us some final remarks, I'll kind of go in reverse order hey, of how you originally spoke. So, Lawrence, if you want to respond go to him. first. I think we need to be careful about what sort of crises we sort of um, constantly propagate, and we really need to see the data about sort of crises of difficulty at the university level. That may be true, I just don't have the data myself, and I'd be interested to see how, if the intellectual difficulty is really on the way. Yeah, the idea of speed reading, um, that sort of <laughs> frightens me a little. I do think, especially when I was talking about the Andrew Hagen article, some people, it's 26,000 words long, Someone, uh, I think it was Susie Orbach, said, uh, oh, take an hour and read that. I thought, read it, 26,000 words in an hour, and someone said, it'll take you half an hour, it'll be worth it. So clearly these people have been mastering uh, speed reading techniques. Jeanette Winterson, when she was very young, because books were banned in her her house, she had to speed read before her demonic mother came and barged the outside bathroom door down where she was reading. (coughs) So there is, speed reading's always been a strategy and a technique um, I'm sort of personally would be wary of that sort of way of um, absorbing a text, and that actually a much slower approach will be um, cognitively more beneficial. Um, I think, just to sum up uh, my aspect of this debate, why I brought up the, the digital reader, 
It was the sense of how reading has now become a socialized activity to the point at which everything that you read now is being punctured by the possibility of reporting it to a larger audience, that you're reading in this cyber group of other people and you're aware of, say, if you like a sentence, you can put it up online. And then as well as reading the story you're reading, the uh, Charles Dickens novel, you're also thinking about, well, what is my response been? What is this little sentence that I've put up there and highlighted? How is that doing? And that type of multitasking is probably an enemy to the type of deep reading um, that does, in the long run, um, promote sort of the joys of literature, more than almost the ego of reading. Okay, Sam? Um, I'd, I'd say that speed reading, I don't know about the cognitive you know, impacts of that. I suspect that if you read, you know, the old Woody Allen joke, he said, yeah, I took a speed reading course, I read War and Peace, it concerns Russia. Um, <laughs> you know, well, I, I don't know what the data is on how much you can take in if you read fast, but if you can read fast and take things, I mean, we all read in quite a sort of, um, I mean, I think we, there's a sort of slight straw man we put up with this idea that um, there is this sort of deep reading where we all sit and we're immune to distractions and we never look out of the window and that the kids of today can't do it. I think since first, you know, people had books and read them, you know, there was always a cup of coffee to make or the cat to put out or, the, you know, I mean, we actually do read in quite a distracted way. We read typically, I mean, they've done um, experiments with people's eyes to show that actually you do, you skim, you go back, you do these little saccades. You know, there isn't a sort of unitary, immersive experience of reading. And I think one thing we are all completely addicted to and show no sign of losing an interest in is narrative. And, you know, that continues to be something that most of the time we like to take in through our eyes and we like to take in through words. Um, so as I say, I think it's all pretty much in robust health. I mean, remember that the age of television gave us um, David Foster Wallace, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not so bad. Okay. Um, I'll <coughs> respond to the two secondary students who were referring to the tension between studying and enjoying. Uh, and it was ever thus, I think. Um, that's a challenge for your teachers, it's a challenge for your parents, and it's a challenge for you as individuals. Um, it's a challenge also for the young folk in relation to your point about you know, um, focusing on the literacy skills and making sure children can read, and we absolutely do need to do that. But the literacy skills need to be taught in context where context provides meaning and affect and engagement. So 20 words that are nonsense and 20 words that make sense out of any kind of context, standing on their own, words like flarp, as it were, uh, are just not, in my view, supportive of fostering lifelong love of reading. However, it isn't just the case that that text is framing every kind of practice in early years. Many good uh, practitioners encompass and encourage children to take home more than the government's thin diet of systematic synthetic phonics, as it were, and allow them to read high-quality literature. So I would say it goes back to that kind of whole piece about what's the aim here? Is our aim to develop a maximum entitlement of these young readers to be readers who can and do choose to read for pleasure for life and who can read the word and the world and debate the text with one another in that social sense of what reading is or are we simply after that kind of minimum thin gruel entitlement which is to just hit the score on the door, the expected standard and Frank yeah I mean I'm not against phonics by the way, I think it's a really important part of uh, kids' learning experience, but the teaching of phonics is different than reading. 
and is different than the broader problems we're discussing. And I think the, the, the problem of reading that, as, as I understand it, has got only minimal relationship to what's happening in schools. I think a reading culture is much wider than that. And uh, it, it's not simply teachers who aren't giving people books, kids books. The parents aren't giving them. You know, young people don't see enough adults you know, being absorbed in books, which is probably the best way of getting them to love to read. I mean, all those things are, are really quite important. I've drawn the conclusion that throughout human history, reading is always set to be in crisis. There's always a crisis talk that surrounds reading. So in that sense, there's nothing new about it. The one big difference is that you know, throughout history, the big problem was that uh, readers were reading too much. I mean, that was a complaint made from, from Socrates onwards all the way to the 1950, 1940s. Readers were just reading too much, and they're getting irresponsible. They're getting bad habits and bad ideas. And it was better if they were more discerning readers. Today, the problem seems to be the crisis, as it outwardly appears, is that people are not reading enough. So it's almost the very opposite in the way that this whole thing has been presented. But within that, I think in the last 50 or 60 years, there has been some very interesting development which gives our crisis of reading in the 21st century a very distinct quality, quite different to what existed. And I think we all touched upon that. But I think that just because we've got a crisis of reading doesn't mean to say that everything is bad. The universities may well have all kinds of problems, but there are serious readers in the universities. You know, they just happen to be a very small minority. Right? But there are, you know, some of the kids are reading some really good stuff, and they're very bright, so the intellectual life is still there. But the, it just simply means that it's a minority of people who are doing serious reading. There are some wonderful books being written. I mean, the, our, our, our literary culture today is really fantastic. We never had such incredible choice. And I, even at my age, you know, in my declining years, I can still gain pleasure and meaning from Twitter and from social media. A very different kind of meaning. It's a different experience because at the end of the day, I think my, 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 my search for meaning uh, requires the text, a book, and you know, physical uh, sort of pages that I can eat and mark up and everything else. But you know, there is the kind of sense in which you know, all these things are just wonderful, but there is a, a fundamental problem which is a very real problem, which we're evading, and that's the content problem and the fact that we're infantilizing the younger generation. We're treating them in a way that is not what, not what responsible adults should do. We should take them more seriously, expect more from them, give them more challenging books, and yes, not, not be afraid of imposing a bit of discipline, indicating that reading does require a measure of discipline no matter what age you are. I mean, that's, that's a fact of life. And anything worth having in life doesn't come by lying back and say, God, please. It does need discipline, and, that, and reading is no different. Okay, brilliant. Can we uh, thank the panel for giving us plenty of time?